we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Today's guest is Chris Boyer, Vice President of Global Security and Technology Policy at AT&T. He is responsible for the company's policies on the issues at the intersection of emerging technology, cybersecurity, and national security. So he's perfect for this. He has worked with NIST on standards. He has been at the National Cybersecurity Alliance and he's the founder and chair of the Open RAN Policy Coalition, which we'll talk about in the broadcast. So, Chris, thanks for joining us. One of the things you still hear from people in the national security community is that the U.S. is losing the 5G race to China. And how are we doing in 5G? Does that make any sense to you? I don't think it does because I feel like there's, you know, there's been a major investment in 5G for most of the national carriers, right? And you know, yeah. I, I don't have data to compare, you know, where we are vis-a-vis -vis China, but I know from an AT&T perspective that we are aggressively deploying 5G. So we have a plan to reach more than 130 million customers with mid-band 5G by the end of the year. Uh, that's actually double what our target was at the beginning of 2022. Through the end of August, we have over 100 million mid-band POPs that have been deployed, so points of presence have been deployed. We're moving to deploy C-band and limited parts of over 40 markets across the country. So from an AT&T perspective, the 5G deployment is going fairly well. It's pretty robust. We currently reach more than 283 million people. So is China ahead or not? I, I don't know, but my sense of it is 5G is being aggressively deployed in the U.S. And of course, AT&T is not the only one. So I think those concerns are a little overblown. What are people using the 5G networks they have access to? What do they use them for? <laughs> That's a good question, right? So we, so it is kind of funny that people talk about, are we losing the race? On the other hand, we get this criticism sometimes of like, hey, what are the use cases or what are the killer apps yeah. for 5G? Yeah. You know, I, I think I think that's hard to predict in some cases, right? So like when like when we did LTE, you know, nobody could have predicted <laughs> that the, that that deployment would have led to some of the things like Uber and other types of apps that leverage the use of LTE. And so if I knew the answer to what the killer app was going to be, I would I would probably be doing something else. But I think, uh, <laughs> I, but I, I think I think there's a lots of opportunities. So when you look at things like healthcare, like connected factories, mm -hmm. like in enterprise five G space, that's a lot of what is happening today. I think part of the confusion is that we we have a tendency to think of things as like consumer oriented, right? So like, am I going to get am I going to get a faster Netflix download or whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? And that's really not what five G was about. It's it, a lot of it because of the latency benefits and the speed benefits. The enterprise applications of it, the use of it from things like connected cars and, and healthcare and, like I said, factories and those things are actually a lot of the, the most prominent use cases that we're seeing today. And that may not be as identifiable to the average consumer as it would be to someone that's, that's more in that space. Where does this fit into the Internet of Things? You were at the White House Internet of Things conference in the last couple of days. How, how does 5G and IoT intersect? There's going to be a lot of IoT devices, frankly, that, that run on 5G networks, right? So you'll see chips put in a lot of different devices. Some of them will be dual purpose, like you do with your phones, where they have Wi-Fi mm -hmm. and 5G connections. And But yeah, I mean, I think our network will carry some percentage of the total IoT devices. There'll be a lot of them that will just be running on Wi-Fi, but there'll be some, some that'll be on the 5G network. And 
you know, I think the White House event was really interesting. And my overall sense of it is, is that improving the security of the devices is an important issue. I mean, you know, especially when you look back at, you always have to talk about, when you talk about IoT security, the Mirai botnet from several years ago, right? And we all have a vested interest in ensuring that these devices don't end up turning into attack vectors for large-scale cyber attacks or lead to infiltrations and infrastructure, et cetera. But I think what the White House is trying to do is kind of raise the bar for security for those devices. And I feel like that's something that we all should support. We can debate on the margins around like, what's the best way to do that? And I know they're very interested in doing a labeling program, which I think could make sense. I think labeling is a, bit of, is a little bit more complicated. I, I, I feel like if you're going to do a label, you've got to put a lot of money into consumer awareness and education so that they know what to look for and what the label means. So not against the label, but it's probably a bigger lift in trying to get that program off the ground. But overall, I thought it was a good, it was a good discussion. What was your big takeaway from it? What was the like, leading point that they made? I feel like their main point was that they're going to have a program in place, I think, by next year. So I think next spring, they're planning to have a labeling program out the door. We had really good presentations from like Carnegie Mellon and some third parties that are doing labeling programs today. So we heard from the Consumer Technology Association. We heard from another organization called IOXT that, that does a lot of certification for devices today. My sense is that the administration's proposal is to really leverage what a lot of those other groups are already doing. So they're not really, really reinventing the wheel. They're really trying to take advantage of a lot of the existing work that's been done. NIST has already developed a baseline standards for IoT device security. So I feel like that's all kind of coming together. I think the optimistic side of it was that they were very open to leveraging a lot of the things that have already been done on the industry side and with the, within standards and trying to figure out how to push that to the device level. The labeling part's the one that probably is the most mm -hmm. nascent because they have to develop what that label is going to look like. And I, I feel like on that respect, we do need to think really, really hard about what are we trying to communicate to the user? What is the data that they need to make an informed decision and really try to keep it simple? I, I worry that we could over-engineer that a little bit and end up with something that's not as effective as it could otherwise be. But I feel like that's the area that probably needs the most development is what the label itself would look like and how they would structure that. But you're looking at a program that will take sometime into 2023 to really emerge. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they were shooting for next spring. I think if they continue to leverage a lot of these other programs that already exist, that makes that more realistic. I think designing what a label will look like and what the inputs are. I, and the, the ideas are pretty good. Like what, I mean, one of them was like have a very basic, like CMU is proposing kind of a basic label and then like a QR code that you could use to go to see more information about the device. I think that's a good idea generally. The question would be like, what are the things you'd want to put on the, the basic information? And I think things like, is the device updatable? What's the expiration date for whatever certification it has? When was it last updated? Those types of things. Like there's some basic things you could put on the box. How that translates to what goes on the QR page and how much detail you put there. I think that's that, that's kind of sure. something that needs to be further examined. I can't ask you about 5G with also saying the magic word ORAN. So <laughs> tell us where you think we are with ORAN and what are the what are the things in front of us? Well, I feel like we're making a lot of progress. You know, a lot of members of the coalition are making announcements and doing deployments of Open RAN. So I feel like it's gaining traction and, and being deployed more globally. Um, there was a, maybe it was a month ago, there was a report that came out by Del Oro Research that basically was talking about how ORAN had been, that the overall deployments were basically twice what they had anticipated for the year. Huh. So the, from a market perspective, like the, that it was doing really well. So I feel like we're making progress. The, the big question for, for AT&T and then any of the big national carriers is, how do we integrate ORAN with a lot of the existing networks that we've already deployed? How does that integration work with other vendors that are already in the network? What more needs to be done to mature it and scale it for a brownfield environment? And I think that ultimately comes down to the business issues. It comes down to 
can ORAN be integrated into the network and deliver the same performance, the same features or same feature quality parity? Can it scale? Is it cost effective operationally? Is it still efficient? Is it not going to lead to a lot of operational expense? So those factors all have to get sorted out. And I, I feel like those things ultimately will get addressed. I just think it might take a little more time before that, before we're comfortable with that. Those are the issues that have come up in the past, scalability and reliability. Yeah. Do you think that we're, we're better off than we were, say, a year ago? Yeah, I think we're making progress. And I think there's, a, I think one of the good things is there's a lot of information flowing around lessons learned from some of these deployments. I think one of the mm-hmm. things I would, when we talk about what can government do, I think facilitating those types of conversations around what people's experience has been is probably a positive thing. It, would, it will help mm-hmm everyone understand better like how the deployments are going. And I also think there's a bit of a misnomer that like with open RAN, people feel like either open RAN or something else, but you, you know, they really aren't mutually exclusive, right? I think you're going to see elements of an open environment introduced in networks kind of piece by piece, as opposed to like whole scale, we're going entirely open or entirely kind of the old legacy design. I think you'll, I think you'll see pieces of it introduced in networks where it gradually gets deployed over a long period of time. For an ATT, we can start deploying some open RAN in Greenfield in some mm-hmm. of these enterprise locations, and we can integrate it with some of the existing network and then kind of build it out as we go along. So I, I think you'll start to see some introduction of ORAN in some of these bigger networks in the relatively near future, but it all depends on when the scalability, reliability, and, and don't underestimate the operational piece, right? A lot of people are concerned that, hey, if you're, I'm going from one vendor to five, six, whatever the number is, mm-hmm. what does that do to me operationally? Like those things all have to get sorted out. So a lot of the times what you hear from people is there's no one really offering uh, integration because you are going to multiple vendors. So why don't some of the companies like Nokia pick up on the integration thing instead? No I think market some companies them. are. Like I, I do feel like like in, within the coalition, I, I can say like there are uh, companies that are members there who I think are primarily interested in the integration piece. So there's some very big uh, name brand companies that I think are very much focused on creating a business around doing some of the integration work. So I do think there's there's going to be a, an industry move to provide that because of that concern that one entity to kind of, you know, if you have an issue, you go to that entity and they kind of own it, right? Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's traditionally been what we've done on a lot of these deployments. And so moving to a multi-vendor environment obviously makes that a little bit more complicated, but I think systems integrators are going to play a key role there. So that's really a different kind of telecom environment we're looking ahead. And one of the things I've been wondering about is telecom and internet sort of merging, you know, telecom and compute and Onda being a bright line between mm-hmm. them. Is that, is that what ORAN's going to do? Well, I think that's definitely where it's heading. I mean, I think telecom infrastructure will start to look more like IT infrastructure at some level, because if we move to an open environment, right, you can run, you can run more of the traditional telecom functions that were deployed on single source devices, like monolithic mm-hmm. devices and things like that. And you can now put them into, run them as software running on the cloud, right? So, so you can take like compute infrastructure from any number of entities and you can run some of your, your core functionality in the compute environment. And it does start to look more like a cloud or an IT based environment as it used to. Or you could even do some things with ORAN using open source running on commodity based hardware. So like COTS, you know, commonly off the shelf hardware mm-hmm. running on x86 processors, you can do things like that. So it does start to look more like IT. It's a convergence of those those pieces of infrastructure. The good thing is, is that introduces a whole new set of entities that can be suppliers and provide capabilities to the network. On the other hand, it's obviously more complex to manage um, from a security yeah. perspective. So, so the environment's gotten a little bit more difficult to manage. But I, I don't think those are insurmountable issues, right? Those are the kind of things that just create, it just requires due diligence and companies have to put in place the right controls to manage that environment. I was going to ask that is how does it change the market as we see this merger? What does the telecom market look like going forward? 
Well, I think it creates a longer tail, right? I don't think it displaces like what the Nokia's and Ericsson's of the world, the big suppliers are out there today. It just means that we're, there's going to be more options available and, and you can see mm-hmm. networks can go from, we've talked about this before, right? The way networks are deployed today, typically what you do is you buy, especially for the radio access network, you use radios from a single vendor and you kind of deploy in a geographic concentric circle, right? So like the Washington area might use them, just hypothetically, it might be a Nokia network and New York could be built on Ericsson or what have you, but, they, but they're usually not mixed and matched in the same kind of geographic mm-hmm. region and they, and they interconnect through the cores and we can move away from that and you can start to see more mixing and matching of vendors. You could use best of breed components. So mm-hmm. like if somebody builds a great new radio, you know, I have the flexibility to deploy that radio in the network without having to go work through another supplier to do that. So I think you see a longer tail with a lot more different vendor options that are potentially available. Now, whether or not how often that gets used, I mean, that, that all depends on the other factors we mentioned earlier, you know, the, the scalability, performance, reliability, operational efficiency, like those factors have to get sorted out. But but I do think ultimately we, 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 sh- we hope to see an environment where instead of having a couple of major suppliers, we now have multiple options available to us. What about Spectrum? I would say that the U.S. is doing okay on Spectrum. It's one of our strengths, but do you think that's right? Or where um, are we on Spectrum? <laughs> that's always a hard question. I, I mean, my <laughs> sense of it on Spectrum is that there's still work to be done. When you talk about there are other countries, I'm not going to go into names, that have freed up more mid-band spectrum. So when you think about 5G, it's really a combination of different spectrum assets, right? You have your traditional cellular spectrum, 800 megahertz range, and you have the mid-band spectrum between three and four in some cases, and you have the higher band millimeter wave spectrum. And all, all of those things combined together is what makes 5G work. That's what delivers kind of the latency and the speeds mm-hmm. benefit that you see with 5G. And and so midband is a key component of that because it propagates a lot further, right, than, mm-hmm. than millimeter wave, but you still get higher bandwidth, but it doesn't go as far as cellular, right? So the benefit of cellular is about coverage, you get wide areas, big concentric circles of coverage, midband is slightly smaller circles, but higher speeds. And then millimeter wave is very much limited, very limited, but it gives you that really high speed benefit and latency benefit. So midband is a key component of 5G. And I think we've you know, we've done some things there. Like, as you know, there's been there's been different auctions for mid-band spectrum, including the C-band auction and, and others that have gone on. So, but I still feel like there, there's other, there, there is other mid-band spectrum that could potentially be made available for commercial use. Um, you know, it all depends on the merits of that individual piece of spectrum or what the right requirements are. And who the users are, the incumbents are to some yes. extent. In the... Yeah, that's right. That's right. A lot I'm sort of, of hoping. By government. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was sort of hoping that the we've done this in the past where you compensate people for moving. I was hoping that would be enough, but we'll see. I don't know that they're going to move, but I do think there are ways, at least I would postulate that there are ways that you could still make some of that spectrum available for commercial use and still satisfy mm-hmm. some of the, the critical use cases that might be necessary for the incumbents who currently own some of that spectrum. We have to figure out how to do that best, but I think there are, I think there's definitely creative ways you could do that. So looking ahead, what do you think the big policy issues are for the remaining couple of years of the administration? What in cybersecurity, in in ORAN, in in telecom in general? What what's what's on your agenda for big policy issues? Well, my focus is obviously in security and ORAN, so I'll cover those two. I think for security, it's going to be critical infrastructure security, right? So there's there's a couple of big proceedings going on right now. There's an incident reporting law that was passed earlier in the year, so. DHS is currently doing an RFI on cyber incident reporting. If you look at the bucket of incident reporting, there's multiple entities that are all working on 
aspects of that. So not only DHS, but also the Securities and Exchange Commission. So, so I think getting to a place as to what is the regime going to look like for incident reporting for either publicly traded companies, SEC, or for critical infrastructure, DHS, how's that going to work? That's going to be a big policy issue for the next, I think, 12 to 18 months, at least, so they can develop those programs. And then on the flip side, you have kind of baselines and requirements, right? I saw an article this morning, actually, where CISA was saying that they're going to issue the performance goals for critical infrastructure sometime very soon. And I think that that's going to set the baseline of performance goals for all critical infrastructure. They're also working on sector-specific goals. Then you have things like the IoT requirements. So I feel like there's going to be baselines are going to become a big issue over the next year or so. Like, what should that baseline look like for all these different devices? How do we get that widely deployed? What's the right way to incentivize people to use the baselines and those things? I think, so I think between on the cyber side, I think it's going to largely be incident reporting and baselines are probably the two big things that are coming. All designed to really raise the bar for security for critical infrastructure. I think it'll be interesting to see how those play out. On the ORAN side, I, I feel like the CHIPS Act included $1.5 billion for ORAN for a program to be administered by NTIA. So that program is still, they're still trying to get that off the ground. My understanding is NTIA is still trying to get themselves organized about how to administer that program. So I feel like that's going to be, it's a big opportunity to try to to really invest in ORAN, put some government money into ORAN, invest in ORAN, and try to deal with some of the challenges I mentioned earlier. Like, how can we address some of the R&D around how to integrate it and prove it in, in addition to more deployment as well? So, but I think that how that fund gets administered and NTI gets that process off the ground, that those are, those are all very hot issues going into next year. Yeah, it's weird to see commerce actually have money. So I, <laughs> that's probably part of the reason they're slow in doing it. What would, you, what would be a good outcome for them to do? What would you want to see them do? Well, I think they need to do multiple things, but I think part of it is is I'd like to see some of the, the money flow to going to some of these lab environments to resolve some of the open issues that are already out there. We don't need like necessarily need new labs. There's tons of labs out mm-hmm. there already working on these types of issues. Can we work together as an industry to try to resolve some of the integration issues that are out there? I also think there's there, there needs to be some investment in radios one of the areas that I've always heard, I don't have any factual basis for this necessarily, but I've always heard that there's, that one of the key things in order to keep up, uh, keep, be competitive internationally is to invest in radio capacity and performance from the radio side. So making sure some of that money goes to these smaller companies that are investing in the radio space would actually be an important thing. So um, making sure the money doesn't just get sucked up by a few big projects, but actually goes to the wide swath of industry that's trying to innovate in the space is really what I think needs to happen. Going back to notification, what would a good notification regime look like? I know people are worried that uh, both the threshold, what has to be notified, and the timeline, how soon do you have to notify? So what's your thinking on that? Well, the law says that it has to be 72 hours notice. So once we identify an event, you'd have to report it in 72 hours. But I think the catch is, so when do you reasonably know that you had a cyber incident? As you know, from your experience in cyber, like, there's a lot of situations in which you might suspect something's going on. You have to do additional research. And so when that exact precise clock starts is kind of, a, 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 to me, is a little bit of an open question, depending upon how they define it. So the definitions in, in how they enact the law mm-hmm. could be really critical because they're going to define what the threshold is and when can you be expected to reasonably know and have to report. I feel like the threshold needs to be relatively high because... You really want to focus on incidents that are really important and critical incidents, not just kind of day-to-day, I hate to say it, but like run-of-the-mill cyber incidents that happen every single day. Um, There are hundreds, so you couldn't, it wouldn't be worthwhile. Right. So you, but, but, but you definitely want to capture things like, you know, like solar winds, right? Or 
or big incidents like that that have happened before. And so how do you define a definition that captures those big incidents that, that are necessary without creating a situation where every little thing has to be reported that would inundate CISA with information? Yeah. I think that's a balancing act. My sense from the comments I've heard from CISA is that they, they totally get that and they're trying to figure that out. But mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard to write a definition that draws a clear line there. So I think that's the challenge. Are you looking at what other countries are doing on this? I know the Australians have a notification issue, among others. So is that a useful place know. for us to look? I, it would make sense for us to look at that and see kind of how it's worked there. I mean, just, yeah. just for trial and error. And, but I, I don't know that they've done that. That's kind of it. We've run to the almost the end of the time. What did we miss? What did you want to say as like a final word here? I just think it's an exciting time, right? Security has become... And, and ORAN and the grouping of issues, right? People ask the question, like, how is ORAN related to security? But think about the idea that it's a competitiveness issue, right? And I think we've, right. we've moved over the last couple of years from thinking of national security and security as one bucket and economic competitiveness as another bucket, but they've really started to merge. We've seen that in the, in the wireless and the 5G context, but, you know, there's other, just, just this past week, right, with the export controls around AI and, and chips, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these other industry segments are moving in that direction as well. So I feel like these are kind of, case studies in some respects, like like 5G was like the first issue that really got put into mm -hmm. that mix. You know, we were talking about this like four years ago when CSIS did its first report, right, on 5G and the market. And so I think these issues are very interesting and they're going to continue to evolve. So it's going to be an interesting couple of years. Great. Well, Chris, thank you for taking the time to do this. We look forward to having you back again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.